All right, I'd ask everyone is to stand as we read God's word this morning, please. This morning's reading is from Exodus chapter 20. It's verses 1 through 3. Um, if you have your Bible, follow along in your Bible. And if not, it's up on the screens. Um, it's only three verses. I think we'll be good. It says Genesis. Exodus 20. <laughs> there we go. Okay. I'm like going, am I losing it? Um, so it's Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And it said, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of God. Let's pray for the sermon. Lord God, there are no other gods before you. Everything else is just vanity and chasing of wind. Lord, help open our hearts to your word this morning. Give God, uh, Kyle, just your words to speak to us this day and help it plant deep in our hearts to grow and thrive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> I feel like I'm getting a little uh, feedback. I don't know if the gain's too high, Jamie, on this. I'm hearing a tinginess. I, um, we're, we're, we're continuing our start of the um, book of Genesis, so of course we're in the book of Exodus, <laughs> chapter 20. Um, I did want to remind you, a couple of weeks ago, we were just excited to announce just our, our heart for this year and our vision for this year is, is to really to make connections with each other, to establish just gospel friendships and community centered around Christ. And because of that, to that end, we've, we've created some different outlets um, for community, um, for small group life, you know, to live out the gospel together with each other. Um, one of which was already mentioned um, Wednesday nights. We have a, a Bible study and a time of prayer. But Saturday morning, we have another uh, gospel community opportunity for men, um, which is called Faith Builders. We just kicked off a, um, a series on um, biblical manhood and what that means. So that's a lot of fun. We meet on Saturdays um, at 8 a.m. Um, every Saturday. So that's great. Um, we also have a, um, a Fundamentals of Christianity um, type of uh, class going on, and that's going to be with Joe Marin. He's in there teaching, but if you're interested in that, you can see him, and, um, and we, we have a, uh, another one that, that Pastor Creeny teaches. He's not here this morning in Fall River, and we're doing a, um, um, a, starting a gospel, another gospel community centering around the, the, the meaning of marriage, and it's for single people, married people, not just married people, because sometimes, believe it or not, single people want to get married. Did you hear that news? That's kind of new. But, that, but it's, good. It's, good. it's good stuff. Um, honestly, I use that book when I do premarital counseling for people thinking about getting married. It really is an excellent resource. So it's going to be a lot of fun to get to know people. And, and Tammy's in the back, and she's um, waving. She's the one carrying, I think, the only baby in here. So that will be a way for, to find her after church. But um, it's so good to be with you all this morning. What a great day, isn't it? Just a beautiful day outside, a nice little uh, dusting of snow, and just a reminder of our good God and his creation and how he loves us. Um, this morning, I want to develop a bit more about the context of the book of Genesis. That's actually why I'm in the book of Exodus. The book of Genesis, I think Pastor Creeny explained this, but it's part of a series of books. Um, it's called The Lord of the Rings. No, um, it's a part of a series of, of books called The Pentateuch. Um, the Bible, Jesus calls it the law. And the Pentateuch basically means a five, uh, five scrolls. Um, the law is just kind of like the, the generalization of the Pentateuch. It's five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, there's even a, a branch of Judaism that exists today that will suggest that the only inspired word of God is the Pentateuch. I believe that's incorrect, but um, that, that is um, a belief system um, today. So the books of the law, the five books of the law, Genesis is a part of this. These were revealed to Moses, and if you're kind of new um, to Christianity and you have not heard of Moses, Moses is the guy that parted the Red Sea. We see movies about him and whatnot. So God revealed the books of the law to Moses so that he might give them to, to the nation of Israel. So really, if we're going to understand the context of the book of Genesis, sometimes you've got to go to different places in the Pentateuch, in the books of the law, to really put it in context and to understand it. That's why I'm in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. The word Genesis, um, real, is a, it's actually an English transliteration of a Greek word. Okay, That basically, a transliteration means like, 
the spelling in English of a Greek word. Does that make sense? So Genesis basically means beginnings or creation or origins. It comes from chapter 1 of Genesis. And last week, if you were here, we developed, we were actually in Genesis chapter 1, and we, we tried to identify what is the central point of that chapter. And we basically said that the central point of Genesis chapter 1 is that, that God is the source of all the material universe, visible and invisible, things that we can see and things that we cannot see. And that humanity's soul, our heart, is most satisfied when we're in right relationship with our God and King, um, our Creator. So that means that as the deer pants for the water and the, the deer is satisfied in the water, we are not satisfied simply by having water and food and drink. We're not also, we're not simply satisfied by having relationship with other humans, right? Or even having work. We're fully satisfied when we're in right relationship with our creator and God. That's the message of Genesis chapter 1. But this morning, I want to ask a broader question. Why is God telling us any of this? <laughs> um, why is God explaining to us that he created the universe, that he's God, that we need him? All of these great questions that, that are answered, that are helpful to us. Why is God revealing to us that he is the creator, that we need him. And I think to answer that question, we need to discover what the Bible is about. What is this? What is this thing (laughs) that we call the Bible? Some look to it just for advice on how to have a better marriage, how how to choose a mate, right? How to be successful in your career, how to be relatively happy. I think we go to the Bible. But what's it really about? A little while back, I taught that there are four basic themes in the Bible. So if you're new and you open your Bible, um, you're going to fall on any one of these themes. So this is a big book, right? But it's going to be about one of these four themes. It's going to either be about the creation, God the creator, he creates, right? Or it's going to be about the fall. In other words, we rebel against him. We sin against him. That's the second theme. The third theme is redemption. We're separated from God because of our sin, but he saves us. He brings us back by his mercy and grace and sacrifice. So there's a redemptive theme in Scripture. But there's also a transformative theme in Scripture, or or, um, a recreation. The creator recreates. So he redeems, but then he recreates us. So we see these themes all throughout Scripture, God redeeming and recreating the earth that we're born again when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's this transformative power that recreates. So all of these themes, no matter where you are in the Bible, it might be hard to detect which theme you're landing on, but it's going to be about one of these four things. But that said, let me ask again, okay, but why any of this? Why did God create? Why did he allow the fall? Why did he redeem us? And why is he recreating the universe? What is his overarching purpose? <clears throat> and understanding this unlocks to us, quote, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything else. And the answer is not 42, if you were here last week. The meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Have you ever seen something and you really weren't sure what it was? And we got a, a picture that's going to come up to kind of illustrate this. What is that thing? Anybody know? what that is? Yeah, it's a vacuum cleaner. It's kind of a different looking vacuum cleaner. I think he's holding the guts of that vacuum cleaner. But, you know, if it were 50 years ago, you might look at this and be kind of bewildered. You know, if I took this machine and I started showing you, look what it does. It purifies the air in your room. It blows leaves around your backyard. And you're like, what what is it, though? At the end of the day, it's a vacuum. It might do a lot of different things, but its primary function, its primary purpose is to suck up dirt from rugs, right? That's why that this handsome-looking man presumably created, I don't know who that is, Mr. Dyson, is that Dyson himself, the one and only, created the Dyson vacuum. I have a shark, sorry. <laughs> when you see the function of a vacuum, um, if you don't know what it is, you're like, oh, okay, I see what this is used for. It's useful to you now. You know, otherwise you're just kind of using it as a paperweight or using it for some other purpose that it wasn't designed for. Friends, this is true of the Bible, too. It makes much more sense when we know why God wrote the Bible, why God does anything that he does at all. 
You see? It's very important for us to recognize this because otherwise we're not going to use the vacuum for its purpose. We're going to go to it so that we can fix our marriage or so that we can make more money. Right? We're going to go to it for those reasons where the Bible does address those things, but it addresses those, those things almost incidentally. There's a greater purpose that God has revealed himself to us through his word. The Bible is about something in particular, and this will unlock, I think, the meaning of not only what Scripture is about, but why you're here on this earth, why your heart pumps in your chest. Scholars call this the organizing principle of the Bible, and it will unlock the and our grand purpose. So let's try to do, let's try to do that this morning. Let's figure out what the Bible's about. What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? What is the organizing principle? Let's start by asking the very simple question, what's the Bible? Good question, right? What is the Bible? It's been said that if we know what the Bible is, we will understand its purpose and its meaning. If you know what the Bible is, you will understand its purpose and its meaning. There's a lot of different Bibles floating around today, right? You guys have seen these. There's the Vegetable Gardener's Bible. A lot of you green thumbs have that one. The Sports Bible, all the athletes in the room, like myself, have that one. The Long Drive Bible, all of the boring people in the room have that one. (laughs) And the Food Medicine Bible, all the hippies have that one. So those are Bibles. We can, get, we can find all sorts of Bibles on the shelf, right? And what do they claim? What, what, are, they say, what are they meaning when they're saying that they're a Bible? Well, I think they, the first thing that they mean is that it's comprehensive. So in other words, anything that you want to know about a long drive is going to be in that book. It's comprehensive, start to finish. All the fundamentals of, of the, the drive. Some of you are buying this right now on Amazon because you like golf. They, they claim to be comprehensive. They claim to be practical and accessible. So in other words, if you're a beginning golfer, you can pick this up. If you're an expert golfer, you can pick it up and still learn something from it. They also claim, I think, to be authoritative. So in other words, I didn't write the long drive Bible because I know nothing about golf. So an authority, some sort of authority wrote that knows what they're talking about, wrote this. So these are kind of like our concept of what Bibles are. Uh, in our day and age. Well, where did we get our idea from the Bible? Well, the Bible. The reason that they're comprehensive and the reason that they're practical and accessible and authoritative is because that's what this is. So our culture is just sort of imitating what the biblical authors were doing many millennia and centuries ago. They derive these ideas from our Bible. But here's here's a good question, though. Where did the authors of the Bible get their idea of the Bible from? Because there was nothing comparable to it at the time. Religions and cultures in the ancient Near East didn't have these types of exhaustive religious texts. So where did, where did the, the writers of scripture, how did they know that, that they had what they had when they had it? Right? Or as my, um, my, one of my professors in seminary said once, how did they know it was the Bible and, and not to wrap fish with it? <laughs> right? Answering the question helps us understand the point of the Bible and the whole entire Bible, the rest of the Bible. Actually, if we can pinpoint the very first part of the Bible written, this I think will show the, this would show the readers at the time and it will show us what is the paradigm for the rest of the Bible, what it is. So we need to find the very first part of the Bible written. So in other words, the very first text that came to Israel in written form that they would have understood as coming from the hand of God. What was it? Now, if I were to kind of poll the room right now and get my kind of Bible students to answer that question, we might have various answers. Um, Some people have suggested there's there's a narrative that's very old about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. Some people say that's the first written um, part, that's, that's the first part of scripture that was revealed. Um, some people say it was the history of David's family. King David was a king in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. I think most of us might say Genesis. Right? That's, that's the easy one. It's in the beginning. So we just kind of assume that must be the first text. 
that Israel received, and you would all be wrong. <laughs> and, I, and I would be too as well. The very first part of the Bible ever given in written form to Israel was the text that we read this morning, Exodus chapter 20. It was the Ten Commandments. God had spoken to Israel before through prophets, but the very first written word that had come from God was the Ten Commandments. Israel would, would have not had a sacred text that, that came before that. That's not to say that, that was, there wasn't any wicked, written records of, of different um, events in the life of history that may, might have been used later on to make up parts of the Old Testament. But the very first part of the Bible that they would have known was from God himself was the Ten Commandments. And this is very interesting. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 20 outlines the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. God reveals himself to Moses and gives him his law. Um, like I said, it's not to say that there weren't any written documents that were older than Exodus 20, but these would have been introduced as from God after the fact, after Exodus 20. So Exodus 20 was the very first word um, that was understood as being from God himself, the very first wit written word, I should say. And here's what it reads in full. Then God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my law. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servants, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Imagine if your Bible were simply that. God said, here you go. This is the Bible. What would that tell us about who God is and about what his intentions are with us and for all of creation? God would write these words on two stone tablets delivered as the first understood written word coming from God. And God continued to speak to Moses after the fact, face to face, and the Bible says Moses wrote all that God said down. Numbers chapter 12 verse 8 says this, With him I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So when the Ten Commandments were delivered to Israel, they would have known that these words were spoken by God himself and not to wrap fish with it. <laughs> but when the first part of the Bible was written, and what was written, how does this help us understand what God is up to? What the point of the rest of the Bible is? What the point of creating you and me in all things? And I think that we can identify this because of what was written in Exodus chapter 20. We know it as the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 is a covenant. It's a covenant. I'm going to explain that in a moment. It's not just helpful advice. It's not just say, live like this and things will go good for you. Exodus chapter 20 is a covenant. A covenant is like a contract made in the presence of God and sometimes with God himself. It clearly indicates that the singular theme of all the Bible is basically this, that God is king and 
all created things are his kingdom. That God is king and all created things belong to him. You see, that's what the Bible is all about. That's the organizing principle of scripture. The kingdom of God. Who God reigns over absolutely as king. The Jews would have understood this perfectly well because that's what covenants were. Covenants were given between kings. Covenants were given specifically between a conquering king and the conquered king. So in the ancient Near East, if I was a big shot king and I started taking over the world, I would go to the countries, with the, they called it a vassal king, the under king, Right? He would be under my ultimate authority, and I would make a deal with him. I would make a covenant with him in the presence of God. You will do this, and you will do that. If you do this and do that, it will go well for you. If you don't, here are the bad things that are going to happen. And by the way, here are the bad things that are going to happen to me if I don't keep up my end of the deal. That's what contracts are, right? We all sign them, and we all know that. There's responsibility on both parties a conquering kingdom was aiming to spread that kingdom and expected that the defeated kingdom to serve under its rule the covenant would outline the expectations like i said do this don't do that Um, the first so the first written word of god comes to israel in the form of a covenant a a divine contract The first written word of God is a covenant and teaches that everything that happens, everything that God does, his motivation in writing scripture, his motivation in saving us, his motivation in creating us revolves around God's eternal purpose that he is the king and we is kingdom. And you know what the Bible is, friends? It's the contract. It's the covenant. You say, well, that's kind of that's kind of rough. You know, i got to keep up my end of the deal. Yes, you do, but there's good news. Just hold on. It revolves around the eternal purpose that he is king, he is creator of all things, and we are his kingdom. And let's unpack this a bit more. Let's look at the covenant as a kingdom principle. The Ten Commandments proves that we, we know that it's a covenant for several reasons. First of all, the covenants have a structure. You guys ever write emails? You know, you know, the basic structure of an email. If I gave you a piece of paper, you could probably pick out right away if it was an email or a different sort of like letter that you mailed because there's different structures to it. There's subject lines and dates, and there's the body, and then there's the signature from Kyle, peace, right? All these different things that you, you might put in your email, right? Um, I'm a Christian, so I'm always like, blessings, Kyle. Um, <laughs> um, that actually blesses you all, too, by the way. It's very powerful. Um, <laughs> covenants in the ancient Near East have a structure as well. The first, the first is the title. The first component of the structure of a covenant in the ancient Near East is the title. So let's, see, let's look at Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Where's the title in that? I am the Lord your God. Who's speaking? The Lord your God. Here's the title, I am the Lord your God. The second component of an ancient Near Eastern covenant is they call it a historical prologue, a history lesson. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You shall not have any other gods. Where's the historical prologue in that? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm giving you a history lesson in case you want to know Here's who's talking to you, and by the way, you owe me. (laughs) Right? So God is basically saying, I created you. I'm the Lord your God. I also saved you from Egypt. You owe me. You say, well, I don't like that in my kind of postmodern sensibilities. I I don't owe anyone. Friends, yes, you do. We might kick against that, but you would not be here if it were not for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We owe him. He's our good king, our good dad, right? We would not be here. We would not have breath in our lungs if it weren't for him. We owe him big time. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you up. Of the so there's the title, there's the historical prologue, and then the ancient Near Eastern covenant would have stipulations, right? Do this, don't do that. Where are the stipulations? This one's obvious, right, in the, in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. Do not. There's the stipulations. And finally, it will close with a, a listing of blessings or cursings based on your adherence to the covenant. Right? If you break it, here are the bad things that are going to happen to you. If you keep it, here are the good things that are going to happen to you. Now, we didn't read the entire law, but the, but the blessings and cursings are extensively drawn out in the last book of the five books of the law in Deuteronomy. That's what pretty much it's all about that. Here are the bad things that are going to happen if you break the law, and here are the good things that are going to happen if you keep it. So, there's the, so we know that the Ten Commandments is a covenant, because of its structure. We also know that covenants in the ancient Near East were to be read regularly to vassal nations. So if I'm the, the top dude king, I'm going to expect my covenant to be read once a year to the, the kingdom that I overthrew. You see? That covenant is posted and it's read regularly to vassal nations. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 9 through 13 tells us that the law was to be read in its entirety once every seven years. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Timothy was to read Scripture publicly every time the church gathered. So we get together every week, and we read our covenant. That's what we're doing. There's two copies, and that's another thing, right? You guys know this. You go to Verizon or AT&T. You sign your contract. They give you, they, they keep their copy and they give you your copy. Right? You both get copies. Why is that? Well, because you both have things to live up to. And you both want to hold each other accountable if one of you starts to wig out on the deal. Right? So that's why you get two copies. In the ancient Near East, one would go to the, the, the top dude king and the other would go to the vassal king. And they would put them in their temples. Isn't this interesting? Because... God, in their minds, was a witness to the covenant that they were making, okay? Because God made the covenant with us, you see, in the Old Testament, what's unique and distinct, this is incredible, is that the covenant that God makes with Moses, the Ten Commandments, do you remember where Moses puts them, ultimately? In the Ark of the Covenant, which goes in the temple, the tabernacle, the presence of God. So the law, the covenant, is in the presence of God, and the, they both go there, and that's a, an amazing symbol, because both copies go into the one temple. We're going to get to that, and uh, we're going to get to that more in a second. Now they get two copies too. You know, a lot of times we we see the movies about about Moses and the cartoons and whatnot, and you kind of see the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not this and that, and you know, oh no, I ran out of room. I got to start with number six on the second stone. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. All ten were on one stone, and all ten were on the other, because one was for the nation of Israel, and one was for God, you see? Does that make sense? That's why there's two. So we know that, that this was a covenant based on what's happening. Does that make sense? So the covenant is an indication to us that God is establishing a kingdom, that he is king, and that he is establishing a kingdom. That's what the Bible's about. That's why he saved us. That's why he's creating a place for us in heaven. That's why he's going to recreate the earth. But I get ahead of myself. Let's look at another proof of this. The tabernacle itself as kingdom principle. The tabernacle as kingdom principle. You can read that if you do this. <laughs> right? So there you go. <laughs> if you're talented... Um, you might be able to keep your head straight. The tabernacle is another example of showing this kingdom theology um, because the tabernacle itself is a picture of the universe. Now, you might not have known this. Now, if you're new to Christianity, try to understand that in the Old Testament, there were lots of symbols of the presence of God. And this was a symbol of the presence of God. It was basically a very large tent, right? And that outer square, that's where people could go like regular Joes, like you and me, okay? That those two, that inner square, there's two sections of it, you see? That's where the priests could go. And where it says ark right there, 
that's only where the high priest could go, and he could only go in there with the, the sacrifice for sin for Israel. Now, where the ark is, is where the presence of God is. God is present in that place, in that place only. That's why the high priest had to come in with a sacrifice, because he was a sinner and the Israelites were sinners, and you cannot be in the presence of God without a sacrifice for sin. So this is a picture, actually, of the entire universe. You might not catch this um, just by reading about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That courtyard there, the outer part, that outer, that outer square, is a picture of the earth, the flatlands, the ground. You see there's an entrance um, in the east to that, that, um, to that area there. Okay? Um, by the way, the entrance to the Garden of Eden um, was on the east, right? There's all these pictures of symbols of this happening in, in the Old Testament. The entrance is in the east. And that courtyard, that land, that earth is a picture of the earth. It's where we live and move and breathe, okay? The altar is a picture of the mountains, right? You can see that altar right there. It says brazen altar. Um, the laver is a picture of the sea. There was a big giant laver with lots of water in it. So it was a, a symbol for the sea. So what they're, they're almost recreating the earth, okay? Now you enter into this little square there where it says altar of incense. And this is a picture of the heavenlies, right? The altar of incense, the prayers kind of going through the stars. This is all symbolic, by the way. We don't think that our prayers actually travel through stars, but it's symbolism. It's our, the altar of incense rising to God, rising to the heavens. So the, the golden lampstand um, is a picture of the stars in the heavens, you see? So now we're kind of in the galaxies in that place. Now, um, when you enter through into where the ark is, there's actually a, a curtain there. And that's the, that's the presence of God, the throne room of God. The Bible says that's where the, something called the Ark of the Covenant is in that room. And basically, the Ark of the Covenant is a mercy seat. That's what the Bible calls it, a mercy seat. In other words, it's a throne. It's a king's throne where the king sits and resides. It's where God's presence is. So the question is, here's the great question. How can we who live with the laver and the, bra the brazen altar in the courtyard, how can we, when we die, pass through the heavenlies into the presence of God and not be consumed by his presence? You see, that was the picture, by the way, of the burning bush. When Moses saw a bush on fire and it wasn't consumed, the symbol, the lesson was, how can I be in the presence of God as a sinner and not be consumed by him and his holiness and his righteousness? How is that possible? And the symbolism of the Old Testament is that the blood of a sacrifice can safely forgive your sin, bring you into the presence of God. Does this make sense? So the tabernacle itself is a picture that God is king who reigns over the entire universe. You see? Worship. You know, Christians are weird, right? Do you, would you guys agree? We're a little strange. Right? You come into a church, not all of them, you know, some churches are very, very somber and still. But some churches, you know, they're all like, yeah, praise Jesus. And we got our hands, sometimes we spin, you know. So, <laughs> right, you guys have seen this, right? Like, if you're new and you've never been to a Christian church, you might walk in and think, like, what's, what's going on here, right? I'm not trying to tease anyone here, but I, I love lifting my hands. I clap. I'm the guy clapping, right, during worship because, I, you know, dance like David dance. That's how I feel about it. Right? But, but what is this? What is this behavior? This worship with our hands up. Psalm chapter 63, chapter 63, verse 4 talks about this. Where we worship God lifting holy hands. What the heck is going on? Why, why not lift a holy toe? Right? Like, what's happening? Well, it was a symbol in the Old Testament of reverence for the conquering king. A vassal king when he would be conquered by the suzerain king, would come into his holy court, right, his, his, his throne room, with presents from his land, gold or silk or whatever it might be. He'd show up with the, the wealth and he would present it to him. Well, how about if you were a poor country and you had nothing, you were ravished with famine and all these different things and you had nothing left? Well, that king would go in and he would give hands to the king. And it would symbolize something very important. It would say to the king, I have nothing to give you but me. I give you me. I am yours. 
So friends, you might not know this. You might have just kind of been following the lead of other people, you know, like when they do it. And, you know, I guess I can kind of, it's surrender, you know, hands up, you know, like, so, okay, that makes sense. But actually, in Scripture, we lift hands as a form of surrender, saying, God, I give you me, right? That's what these kings, so worship itself is a symbol that we serve a great king, that he is building his kingdom. That's the worship principle, see? The very first command is a kingdom principle. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, number 4. It says this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The very first command that we get from the king to the, Sus- to the vassal kings, right? The governors, the human beings, was to rule faithfully like he rules. To rule with love and grace and patience and order. See? The very first command is a kingdom principle. We are to be fruitful and to multiply the kingdom of God. Why are we to multiply? Well, kingdoms need citizens. Right? We need, if, if it were to be at just Adam and Eve, it would have been pretty sparse, wouldn't it? Not much of a nation. Be fruitful and multiply. Go to the ends of the earth. Rule over it with faithfulness and love. Kings need kingdoms. So we're to be fruitful and multiply the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, the fall would make us guilty before our king and would require our just king to either condemn us or to pay our debt for us. You see, here's the bad news. You see, the stipulations of the covenant, well, we broke them all. You know, if we were just to, to be honest with each other, this covenant God makes with us, we fall in sin away from God, and God says, okay, if you keep this law, you can be with me. If you don't, you can't. You can't come into my presence. And, and the word for that is death. You know, we're separated from God forever. The Bible calls it hell. It's a, it's, it's a forever separation from God because we're lawbreakers. So either we pay the curse of the law or God pays it for us. And let, let me continue here with number five, that God's rescue is a kingdom principle. God's rescue is a kingdom. All is not lost because we broke the covenant. All is not lost because we broke God's word. Because he provides a savior to rescue his people to populate his kingdom. You see? When Jesus died on the cross for sinners, God was restoring what we lost in the Garden of Eden, and he was building himself a kingdom made of people from every nation and tongue and tribe. It doesn't matter how grotesque your sin is. It doesn't matter what you've done, how grievously you violated God's law, because the rescue is for anyone who simply comes to him in repentant faith. There's four mountaintop passages that talk about our rescuer who has come to restore the king's kingdom. Isn't this great? The Old Old Testament talks about a rescuer. The king is going to come and take back what we lost in Eden. There are four mountaintop passages in the Old Testament that talk about the coming rescuing king to save sinners. And let's look at this. Let's just review a little bit. God blesses his creation of man and woman, Genesis 1.28. Mankind is made as image bearers to imitate his ruling over us, Genesis 1.27. We're to be fruitful and multiply, populate his kingdom in obedience, Genesis 1.28. We're to fill this earth and to subdue it. Yet humanity by disobedience and sin was expelled. We're kicked out of that tabernacle, in other words. We're expelled from God's presence, God's good kingly rule. And the promise of Jesus is meant to restore what we lost. We're outside of the presence of God in the wilderness, not in his holy temple, but there is a promise of a rescuer, of a savior, to bring you back to your good God and your good king. And this is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the Bible and Christianity. Genesis' first mountaintop passage, passage, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 I will, here's the first promise of the coming king and savior in the Bible. Okay? I will put Adam and Eve, 
in the Garden of Eden. They just rebel against God, and here's what God tells them. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's bad news, okay? And between your seed and her seed, more bad news. But here's the good news. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now this is a picture, this is figurative language, that this conquering seed will crush Satan and death, the consequence of sin, under his heel, under his foot, right? But he will bruise his heel. It will cost him his life. He'll conquer sin and death and Satan, but it will cost him his life. This is the first promise of a coming hero and a coming savior in the Bible to restore what was lost in Eden. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the woman shall be with child, the seed. Genesis 22, 18, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Talking to Abraham. Abraham would be the father of the coming hero conquering king, Jesus the Messiah, who would save us and restore his father's kingdom. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, she will conceive and bring forth a son. Mary will conceive, bring forth a son. There's the seed meant to conquer Satan, sin, and death, to rescue us, to rescue sinners like you. Luke chapter 1, verse 34, his kingdom will be without end. This victory that he comes to conquer sin and death, to, to pay for sin on the cross, he would die for it, but he would resurrect to life and restore his father's kingdom forever. There's no school shootings in heaven, praise God. Genesis chapter 12, number 2, second mountaintop passage. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Talking to Abraham about the seed that he would provide, the Messiah. Through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 2 Samuel, third mountaintop passage, third promise of the coming king. Chapter 7, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will make you a great name. See, this, it's the same language. I will make you a great name. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. Now just understand Israel as to be the people of God, people rescued by God. Not just the nation of Israel, all people, all nations rescued by God, by grace through faith, okay? I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more, as formerly, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. John chapter 14, I go and I prepare a place for you. Remember Christ said this? You see, he's the, he's the covenant hero. We broke the covenant. He pays the penalty of the curse of the covenant and rescues his people for himself. And he goes and he prepares a place for us. I will raise up your descendant after you. He's talking to King David, that, and he's talking about the Messiah. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever amen come on that's our king this is his covenants this is his promise read it how many people if i told you that you'd get a million dollars to read this you'd you'd be coming through it tonight but friend there is a glorious kingdom waiting for us if you trust in jesus christ he has made a promise to us in the word, his kingdom shall be without end. Isn't this great? Look at this again. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people. I will plant them. They may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. They're back in the temple. They're back in Eden. Not disturbed again because sin and death are no more. And here's the fourth mountaintop passage. Jeremiah chapter 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Why is he making a new covenant? Well, because we blew the old one. We broke it. So he says, I'm making a new covenant with you, a covenant that you can't break because it depends on the power and victory of Christ. He pays it for you. 
He accomplishes the terms. He obeys the Ten Commandments for you in your place. You see? He honors the law and He honors the righteousness that we couldn't honor. And when we put faith in Him, all of His righteous obedience to God's law is credited to us. And we are innocent children. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them. They blew that one. When I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. It's talking about the kingdom of heaven come when Christ returns. They will all know me. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born under the promise, the covenant, to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Isn't that fantastic? Oh my goodness. Friends, sing, dance like David danced for crying out loud. The kingdom favor lost at the fall in Genesis is won back by the rescuer, Jesus Christ. Look at the conditions in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. I got a little chart up here for you. Okay? And compare it to the end of time when Christ restores everything to his good will and good kingdom. Genesis chapter 1, before sin... Revelation chapter 22, after sin is crushed. Look at it. First, a river flows out of Eden, dividing into more rivers, watering vast lands, Genesis 2.10. Revelation 22, in the end, there is a river of water of life flowing out from the throne, verse 1. A river flowed out of Eden, dividing into more rivers, watering vast lands, Genesis chapter 2. A river flowed out of the throne, having in its shores the tree of life, which, pro- which provides healing for the nations. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, there is a tree of life. In Revelation 22, at the end, that tree is back. At the side of the river was the tree of life, Genesis, Revelation chapter 22. There is a curse of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, Revelation chapter 22, the curse is no more. It's lifted. There is no more sin or death. In Genesis chapter 2, there is the breath of life breathed into man. And in Genesis, excuse me, Revelation 22, the presence of God is there. In verse 3, we will see his face and his name will be on our heads. Man is called to cultivate and keep the garden. And at the end of time, humanity shall serve him. Another place in scripture says that we will rule with him. An angel guarded the entrance to Eden after the fall, if you recall. Well, the city, this eternal city, is described as having a gated entrance. Man rules over creation. Genesis 1.28, Revelation 22.5, they will reign with him. God blessed the keepers of the garden. Genesis 1.28, in the city, those who are present will be called blessed. You see, friends, Jesus is king, and this is his kingdom. And we, he will have his way. He will take it back. Can I invite you this morning to consider whether or not you will be in his presence in his holy kingdom? You see, that's what this Bible is about. Where we stand today, God is in action, restoring what, he lo- what we lost in Eden. Fellowship with God and each other. Rulership over the earth as image bearers under the king of kings. An earth populated with God's people to fill his kingdom. That's what's coming. That's our hope that we wait patiently for. And as we open up the book of Genesis and we study its contents, let's just remember that it's so much more than a book of beginnings, how the earth began. It's a historical prologue. It's a testimony of what God has done for us, who he is, his great love for us, what he expects from us, what he will do for you if you come to him 
and repentance and faith. You will be his bride and be in his kingdom forever and ever. The historical prologue of Genesis, I think, will open up to us the reality of our need for this good king in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. God, we stand in wonder and in awe of who you are. Isn't it incredible, God, what you've done? God, you are king. You created all things to be a good king, to rule over us as a king and as a father and as a bridegroom. I pray, God, that we would not resist you, that we would not scorn your law. God, that we would trust that you're good, that we would trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to present his sacrifice before you for the forgiveness of sins. That we would be in your holy presence, in your kingdom which is without end. If there is anyone in this room tonight that does not know Jesus Christ, know this, God, the creator king, sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to pay for your sin, for sinners like us. Turn from that sin, trust in Jesus, and receive his love, his favor, and his righteousness. Receive the forgiveness of sin. Friend, if you feel your heart turning to God in repentance and faith, if that's you, could I see your hand? Could you raise it up high for me? You raising your hand doesn't save you. It doesn't satisfy the law of God. I just want to pray for you. Is there anybody? Thank you for those hands, God. God, we thank you for the testimony of your word, your covenant to us, your promise that you're coming to win this earth back. God, I thank you for your people. And I pray, God, that we would tell it on the mountains, that we would be with you every day praising you for who you are, that we would comb through your word, that we would fellowship around your word. And, God, that we would tell our family and friends the good news of Jesus Christ and that we would not be ashamed. God, thank you for this wonderful morning, this Lord's Day, where we get to celebrate our good King. In Jesus' name, amen.